All right, uh, we're going to be in Judges 16 tonight, so I'll give you a second to turn there. And we're going to just be doing, uh, we'll be doing two weeks in Judges 16. Uh, so we're just, we're going to be doing though the bulk of it uh, tonight, all the way through verse 22, hopefully, time allowing. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to go ahead and start reading from verse 1 of Judges 16. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute and went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose, and he took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman of the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will, give you a th- uh, we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times, and I shall shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So that is the text we'll be in tonight. And there's a bunch of ways uh, we could look at this text. Um, I've decided to go with the, the main idea, the uh, title, uh, Turning Up the Volume, which is really, I think, what the author of Judges is doing right now in the, in the text overall. You know, in the book, we've been exploring the pattern of the cycle of Judges, where Israel essentially is faithful to God, then they get uh, grossly entangled in sin. God delivers them from their sin with or without repentance. Kind of repentance drops off at some point, but he delivers them nonetheless. Uh, and then there's uh, uh, really a, a going back towards that sin. And in this chapter in Judges, the author is, in a really acute way, turning up the volume, showing us that exact same pattern in the life of one judge uh, through the course of just uh, a matter of verses. And it becomes rather painfully obvious to us uh, the uh, foolishness of the sin that Samson is captured in. Um, you should be thankful for that title because the other option that I had was uh, Hey There, Delilah. And so <laughs> um, between the two, uh, I think that one does a better job of getting the main idea. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, um, to, so again, uh, the, the main pattern that you see overall in the book of Judges and in this chapter is this cycle of sin, destruction, and then deliverance. And every time uh, Samson is caught up in some sinful behavior, the Philistines set out to destroy him, seemingly to get the upper hand on him, uh, and then he's delivered. And that cycle continues, 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 until verse 21, where the cycle is broken, because uh, in that case, the Lord says that he has left, the Spirit of the Lord has left Samson, and so he's actually given over to his destruction and not delivered out of it. And so uh, looking at that overall cycle, we're just going to go through verse by verse and see how does that manifest in the text, and then uh, zoom back out and ask the question, what is the author communicating to us in all these details? So the first thing to note is this, the story we get right off the bat is not one featuring Delilah, but one featuring some other unnamed woman, similar to uh, the woman from uh, chapter 14. Uh, she's, she goes by no name, uh, and she's not really a love affection of Samson. She's more of a lust affection. And uh, it's characterizing for us who Samson is, what he's like. He's shown himself to be uh, someone who's vengeful, someone who's uh, very spontaneous with his vengeance. Um, and he's shown himself to be someone who's very subject to um, the, the attraction of the eyes. Uh, women seem to be his particular weak point. And that's drawn out uh, by the author by showing us it's not just a woman that he thought he was going to marry. So we're not fooled into thinking that he truly loves these women. And same with Delilah, if he was just giving us those two stories, as readers, we might come to the conclusion that Samson's really an affectionate person, a loving person. Um, but the author is kind of intersplicing both of those stories with the fact that he just kind of is going in to see some common prostitute. And so we're not to understand that Samson's a loving person who's got misguided romantic affections. He's a, he's a person who's driven by lust primarily. And so you see that in the text here. Uh, he goes into a prostitute. And what's interesting about this whole uh, three-verse segment is there's no conflict between Samson and the Gazites uh, as far as we are told about. The, it seems, though, that they have some background um, uh, beef that's going on in the, in the text because Samson doesn't really do anything in the text to provoke them. Uh, all that is happening is he's available to be attacked, right? They, they think they're going to catch him off guard. And Samson also seems to know that there's this kind of looming danger because you'll notice he doesn't even stay the whole night. He's not someone who's sleeping as if he's in a safe location. 
But the fact that he's going into a place that's dangerous or that people have it out for him doesn't prevent him from going into the place, sleeping with the prostitute, essentially exposing himself to danger, uh, and then relying on his strength to get him back out of that situation. So the first thing that we see goes into a prostitute. Uh, the Gazites essentially try to surround him and, uh, and take him in. But Samson wakes up, uh, is not fooled by their attack, wakes up, surprises uh, them, and essentially takes their city door and gate and just rips it off its hinges and drops it off somewhere else, which in, the, in this time, that's the only way to defend your city. So he's essentially kind of completely exposing any other kind of attack that would happen. And in doing so, we're to understand this pattern of Samson's life that he, he does not depend on staying away from sin to keep himself pure. He essentially depends on getting out of the consequences of his actions. That's the way he thinks he's going to kind of make it through. It's kind of how it's been going for him. He doesn't stay away from uh, a woman of the Philistines. He doesn't stay away from this prostitute. He doesn't, he doesn't take heed of to the foolishness of his actions. He simply goes, oh, I'm strong enough to get out of it. It kind of seems that it's something he's become used to because he goes knowingly into this situation. We know that he knows that it's dangerous because he doesn't stay the whole night. He wakes up, uh, meaning he probably knew ahead of time that they had it, were going to have it out for him. And ne- he nevertheless goes and then delivers himself. And then we're told this story about Delilah, the very famous Samson story, probably one of the most well-known in all of the book of Judges. And then uh, we're told that she's from the Valley of Sorek in verse 4. Her name is Delilah. And very early on, uh, the author is framing this uh, from, a, from a frame right off the bat, that Delilah is someone who's not to be trusted. And we're told this as a reader by the author telling us that it's the lords of the Philistines who've come up to her and they tell her to seduce him and to see where his great strength lies and by what means we might overpower him. And so it's often assumed uh, that Delilah is a Philistine woman, and she could be someone who's from the Philistines, who's also, you know, being paid by the Philistines, but it could be that she's just some woman, Philistine, Israelite, someone who's living in this Canaanite region, um, and she just happens to be taking Philistine money very happily. That wouldn't separate her much from the Gazites or the people of Judah. She's just kind of with the Philistines in, in their whole agenda. Uh, essentially trying to get rid of Samson because he's been a thorn in their side for now almost 20 years. And so uh, she takes the money. It's, it's quite a price, uh, 1,100 pieces of silver. And she's saying, uh, essentially, she's going to agree to do this. And so even if we're told not to trust her on the front end, it should become obvious to us by the end of verse 7 that she's not a trustworthy person because she's going to start kind of exposing Samson to regular uh, bouts of uh, danger um, and as an as a, as audience, that becomes obvious to us that Samson's regularly exposing himself to danger. Uh, but Samson doesn't seem to think about it that as all too uncomfortable, as it becomes clear. So the first thing we're told in verse 6, So Delilah says to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Now, that should set off alarm bells for Samson right off the bat. But it doesn't. And, uh, and so Samson kind of gives her this, uh, this response. He's going to play along with this game. And he says in verse 7, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and become like any other man. Now, it's, it's worth asking the question as a reader, why would the Philistines or Delilah believe this? Why would they think that that is the thing that's going to zap Samson of their strength? And we have to understand something about the time and the place and the day that they're in. These are people who are very superstitious about a whole host of things. They're not a scientific people. They're not thinking, uh, they're thinking that you know, gods and invisible forces control everything. And while it is true that there is a one God controlling everything, they worship Dagon and they worship other gods for different seasons. They have like kind of this whole mystical uh, belief in a whole host of superstitious things. So it shouldn't surprise us that they buy into the fact that 
uh, oh, superstitiously, if there's seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then, you know, if you do this kind of ritual, you'll weaken Samson. So they kind of buy into this idea, which shouldn't shock us because he's, he's probably playing into their superstition in some sense. And so uh, then the lords of the Philistines come up. Uh, they essentially provide this for her. Now Delilah has these seven fresh bowstrings. Uh, he, she sets, sets them up on an inner chamber, so in her house, to ambush him. And then uh, in the still of the night, she says to him, in verse, uh, this is in verse 9, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he wakes up, snaps the bowstrings, almost as if it's nothing. And it's told to us that the secret of his strength is not known. Um, what's likely implied there is he just destroyed all those Philistines because they're in the bedchamber. They're probably attacking him and he rips himself free and then probably defeats them as he did with the jawbone of the donkey and several other cases. So the author's kind of starting to skip details because he wants us to see, uh, he doesn't want us to miss the forest for the trees right now. He's wanting us to see the broad picture of what's going on. And so then the next thing we're told, it doesn't tell us how much time has passed. It's essentially like a very staccato, rapid fire uh, retelling of the exact same events, but just in a different paragraph. And now Delilah says once again to him, uh, essentially, tell me how you might be bound. This time she accuses him on the front end. Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. So she's accusing him of somehow being guilty of not being forthright and forthcoming. Uh, Although one could say certainly the same about Delilah. So it's becoming clear in this whole story, there's a whole lot of uh, blood on on everyone's hands. uh, No one's really an innocent character that's going on right now. And so she says the same thing to him again, uh, tell me how you might be bound. And this time he tells her uh, something similar, but he's going to do a different spin on the same idea. If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So it's a similar kind of spoof on this kind of superstitious belief. Uh, But nevertheless, they say, uh, they, they buy into it. She, she kind of repeats the thing again. Once again, cries out, uh, this is in verse 12, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And the men lying in ambush were in her inner chamber, but he snaps off the ropes of his arms like a thread, leaves some implication there. They've probably all, once again, uh, forfeited their lives. And then uh, she says uh, in verse 13, uh, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Uh, tell me how you might be bound. And so now she's becoming more forthcoming. And he says to her, if you, if you weave the seven locks of my head in the web and fasten them with the pin, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So he's kind of spinning the same idea, but this time with his superstitious spin, he's getting, you'll know he's, he know, he's edging closer to the truth. He's edging closer to, let's say, the core of his commitment, this, this growing of the hair. To this point in time, this is the only part of the Nazarite vow that he has not violated. So he's probably certainly drunk at parties. He's probably certainly participated in those events. We know he's touched dead bodies. Um, this is the part of the Nazarite vow that it seems that he's kept faithful to, you know, if every other part of it was forsaken. So he's getting closer to essentially the last remnant of a demonstration of faithfulness in his life, which is that his hair has never been shaven, right? And so he's not telling her to cut his hair. He's just saying, bind it up. And so she does so. She essentially gets him to sleep. Then she weaves the hair in a web in the loom. Uh, she makes it tight with the pin, essentially locks it in place. And then she cries to him again, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And you have to imagine how powerful Samson is at this point because with his hair tied to a loom, he jumps up, essentially like takes the loom out of its place, probably beats a whole army of Philistines again and essentially walks away unscathed. Um, You're kind of left to imply that at some point in time between that and the next episode that his hair is out of the loom. So he... He was moving around with this thing, probably to smash it and destroy it. So he's a, he's a strong person is the point. He's, he is driving a lot of confidence. He's not thinking about his actions. He's thinking in all of this, remember, just like we see in the first three verses, he can expose himself to sin. He can expose himself to danger. He's not too worried about it. 
He's not too worried about consequences because every time he's faced consequences, he's been able to get out of them. So he's not worried about uh, you know, avoiding Delilah or not falling asleep on her lap again or withholding the secret. He's becoming comfortable with the sin and uh, essentially the danger around him because he's confident that he'll be delivered from that danger. He's becoming increasingly sure of that kind of thing. And then uh, in the final kind of episode, uh, she then accuses him of not even loving her. She says in verse 15, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And then she presses him with her words day after day, and now uh, he becomes vexed. And he tells her all his heart, and he says to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. Now that's not completely true. You know, he's violated parts of that Nazarite vow, but in, in the thrust, he's, it is true that this part of his vow he has kept. And he's saying, if my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Samson himself has internalized these kinds of, uh, let's say, superstitious ideas about how God works. So he treats God similar to how Jephthah treated God, that God operates like a, like a pagan deity in that if, if I do this thing, regardless of my morality, if I, let's say I, I hold this vestige of faithfulness, God will be faithful to me. And so that's how the, the pagans treat their gods. They can keep parts of their life off, but if they're faithful in this one lane, then God will be faithful to them. Samson treats God like that. He says, if I don't shave my head, I can, I can sleep with prostitutes. I don't have to pay attention to the law there. I can drink wine. I can touch dead bodies. I can essentially forsake any resemblance of obedience to Yahweh as long as I don't shave my hair. And so he's convinced that in his, if his hair gets cut, his strength will leave him. And that's a superstitious belief. If his hair gets cut, the Spirit of the Lord can still dwell upon Samson. But what, what is interesting is that his, he, he believes almost superstitiously in God in some way. And then uh, we're told that Delilah then uh, sees that she, he has been uh, true, true with her. He has told her his secret, essentially. And then uh, she, she calls the Philistines again, tells them to come up. Then the Philistines come up to her. They bring the money this time. This is the author setting us up for the fact that this is the final time, right? Because previously we've not been told about any money exchange. The author is setting us up ahead of the action that this is kind of like the somber moment, right? Just like when uh, the hero is about to lose a fight in a movie and the music and the playing in the background is very uh, gloom and very, very dull. It's, it's kind of setting you up for this anticipation. And so they exchange money. She makes him once again sleep. She has someone shave his hair. Then this time she begins to torment him and his strength has left him. And she says, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. Now it's interesting that Samson nevertheless wakes up and he'll say, he says this kind of, uh, this very infamous phrase, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. There's this false confidence that he's going to be delivered once again. And you notice the text tells us in verse 19 that his strength has left him. And then in verse 21, it goes further to explain what does that mean. And it says that he did not know that the Lord had left him. So Samson's strength is derived from the spirit of the Lord. It's not a strength that's innate within him. And also, lest we superstitiously believe how Samson believed that it's his hair that is his strength, the text is clear that, yes, his hair shaving was correlated with his strength leaving him, but his hair shaving wasn't what caused his strength to go. It was the Lord finally abandoning him to his, to his sin. And so he's once again in the, in the, in the belly of, uh, of the beast. He's once again exposed himself to sin. He once again expects deliverance. This time, though, He's not delivered. The cycle is essentially broken. He's, he's given over. He's abandoned to the consequences of his sin. Verse 21, And the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, bring him down to Gaza, bind him with bronze shackles. And now he's forced, ironically, to work at a mill, essentially grinding, uh, uh, grinding grain, um, which is something that requires strength to do. 
but now his strength has left him, so his punishment is very fitting, as it were. And so that in that, uh, before we go to verse 22, there's you got to zoom out and ask the question, okay, what is the author of Judges trying to tell us when he's telling us all of this detailed event of Samson's life, right? The author skips over 20 years in, in the uh, end of verse fifth or in the end of chapter 15. And so at the beginning of chapter 16, we have to ask, well, why does he decide to pick up the story here again, right? If you'd ask the question from uh, a modern author, why do they pick, uh, skip certain parts of uh, the story and, and zoom in on certain parts of the story? They're zooming you in on moments that they want you to pay attention to, right? This is a, an author who probably had access to a whole host of stories about Samson. He wants to tell a particular account of Samson's life, detailing in what he deems to be important themes. And I said at the beginning, I think what the author is doing is he's turning up the volume on the whole book of Judges. So how does he, how does he do that in this case? Well, if we're right now about several hundred years into the book of Judges, several hundred years into the cycle of sinning, abandoning God, becoming comfortable with the surrounding peoples, and expecting deliverance. And up until this point in time, the Israelites have gotten that deliverance in, in one form or another, right? They've sinned. They've essentially exposed themselves continually to more and more sin, become more and more comfortable with sin, every time relying on some kind of deliverance with or without a true or genuine repentance. And lest we lose that in the 15 chapters or the previous time, the authors now turn this up in one chapter where in a matter of verses, you see one person who regularly, almost like day after day or week after week, is returning to the same woman, to the same situation, to the same threat, to the same question, to the same danger, expecting deliverance, knowing that he probably should not be doing this. And in, in turning it up to such an acute level, the author is making us aware of the broader theme of Judges, the broader idea, which is that it, Samson is, is Israel. He's, he's parallel to Israel. He's behaving in the way that Israel has behaved as a nation overall. Sam, now, Samson's not a figurative character who's been made up for this illustrative purpose. He's a real person, but it's, it's, turning up the, it's dialing up the, the acuity of the story. And in, in, in dialing up the story, uh, there's something else that becomes interesting, which is uh, earlier when we looked at Samson, we were introduced to him. Remember, we were introduced to Samson not in his, uh, in his judging years, but we're introduced to him first in his, in his infantile years before he's born. Um, and we're told that he's supposed to be someone who's uniquely called by God to deliver Israel from, from the Philistines. And in so, he's starting to parallel Israel a whole lot more, right? Israel's a nation called by God for a specific purpose to do his will in the world, called out of their essentially uh, dangerous position, and they're called to be a blessing to the nations around them, particularly in the promised land. And they fail to do that generation after generation after generation. And Samson, following a similar pattern, right? he's called out of his early life to, to kind of be set apart to obey the Nazarite vows. He does not do that. Israel is given the Ten Commandments. They, they don't follow any of the law. They're abandoning a whole host of things, right? And Samson's, uh, for us, really a, a picture of what Israel is like. He, he is Israel, right? He's behaving exactly like they are. And similar to Israel, uh, there's, this, there's this warning in the Samson story that eventually, eventually the Lord's patience runs out. He gives Samson over to his uh, sin. He leaves Samson. And in so, if you're a reader and you're picking up on the ideas in this text, there's this almost ominous moment of, well, if the Lord can do so with Samson and he's just in doing so, which we can see that's truly the case, um, then, then certainly it is, is the case that God could do so with Israel as well. But then there's this uh, interesting verse uh, in verse 22. There's interesting detail. Uh, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So there's this huge kind of moment of defeat, loss, uh, giving over to sin. And then there's this like little thin glimmer of hope. And that thin glimmer of hope is something we'll pick up on in more detail next week. 
but it's interesting for a couple of reasons. One is the author includes this before he tells us the next story about Samson. So he's giving us a little uh, ray of hope. And, and in some sense, he's, he's uh, showing us not that uh, Samson has returned to faithfulness with God, uh, but even, even in Samson's hair, once again growing back, uh, it's, it's almost this anticipation of God once again uh, longing or, or desiring to return to Samson to give him strength, to deliver the Philistines, to be who Samson's supposed to be. Uh, in the in the text of Judges, so uh, that's uh, let's say the the dominant idea of chapter sixteen. It's kind of turning up the the main idea of the whole book of Judges in in one tiny chapter, um, and we're not even uh, yet to the end of sixteen. But we'll we'll have to stop there and uh, pick up next week. So uh, let me just close in prayer, and then we can go to discussion. Father, we uh, we are so grateful to you for your word and um, how you give us these. Uh, beautiful reminders of truth, um, how you can uh, enlighten our minds and our eyes to see um, your word as, as lovely and, and beautiful. Lord, we pray uh, right now as we uh, move towards discussion um, that you give us, uh, give us patience, um, focus our minds, uh, help us to put away the distractions from the week and help us put away uh, all other things that might be vying for our attention um, and help us give, a, give us a singularity right now to, to focus on you. Um, to search our hearts, uh, to apply ourselves, um, and by your grace that we may uh, learn more uh, of you from your word. We pray this all in your name. Amen.